Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman. We're here with our friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. We are also here with our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. And joining us on the dials is Erica. Like I was saying uh, before we started rolling, Erica, it looks like you're in a different time zone than the rest <laughs> of us. I know our listeners can't see this grid uh, in this 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 uh, video chat we have going, but your room is so much darker than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. We usually record at night, but today we're recording at noon. It's funking with my setup because it's usually a little less bright in here, so I just had to close the blinds, but it looks like I'm in a dungeon. <laughs> you wanted to brag about your microphone. Tell us about that, that new purchase. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. Can you guys it's see in that? frame. I can no, see I very see clearly. It yeah, it's... Well, it's not Ooh. mine. It's my brother's. Um, he's started a new venture where he does like this live streaming video game stuff. I don't know if he's making mm. money, okay. Mm, okay. but... I saw this in his room. That's really popular online right now, so he, he might be. Yeah, and then I saw this in his room, and I was like, whoa, can I use that to pod? He was like, yeah, for sure. So I don't know if the listeners have noticed, but my uh, recording quality since quarantine started has been absolute shit. So it'll be better day. It's the number one, uh, it's the number one note we get from listeners, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're very rude and blunt about it, too. Audio's fucking shit on air. <laughs> yeah, so this will be uh, my setup going forward. It'll be a little better. It's great. It's a great microphone. Maybe we'll screen grab it, and, and that will be the photo for this episode. I also noticed that, uh, Max, you just put on your Nick Nurse hat. Mm-hmm. I did. I was I was feeling insecure about my hair, actually, to be honest. Oh, for good though, reason, yeah. Get that back on there. <laughs> no, I, I went swimming last night at Jug's Pool, our, our buddy Jug, and there was probably <laughs> Jug's ten pool. of us over Jug, there just under. Jug's Pool sounds like a hip hangout or something, like the Max or something, like from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> like, yeah, you guys going to Jug's no, Pool? No, well, Jug is our old roommate, and um, he moved into a really nice place in Westdale, so a few of us went over there. And Jug is known as sort of a surly guy, kind of like a don't touch my stuff kind of guy. Do you know what I mean? Like he has a bit of that reputation. But uh, he's been very liberal with the use of his pool. And he's very casual about it, too. He's just like, yeah, come over whenever you want. It's been really hot around here, as we know. And we've been going to the pool all the time. So it's been uh, really nice. But anyway, I forgot to, I think with my curls, I have to condition them <laughs> if, once they get wet. Otherwise, they just turn into like a dry, sort of like wiry uh, curl, yeah, which nobody wants to see. It's like frayed hay. <laughs> frayed yeah, hay. it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but I did actually talk to Nick Nurse. Um, actually, this is uh, fucking brutal, actually. Um, I was texting with Nick the, uh, yesterday, and he was uh, – we were talking about music, some music stuff. He was working on a Rolling Stones song. And he, I was in the grocery store, and he FaceTimed me. <laughs> and, um, and he was in the Raptors practice facility in Florida. And it was really cute, actually, because they're uh, practicing right now at FIU – Florida International University, I believe. That's where the Raptors are set up before they go into the bubble in Orlando. And he he told me this before he went, that his wife, Roberta, played volleyball at FIU. And so he's like, hey, I just want to show you this thing. So he called me on FaceTime. I'm in the grocery store. He's in the athletic center at this university with the mask on. And he he leads me into like this sort of other corner of the athletic center. And it's a picture of his wife playing volleyball. It's like, oh, this is Roberta and her volleyball team back in 2008. He just like wanted to show it to me. It was very, very cute. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. So I I took a screen grab and I uh, meant to send it uh, to Ash. Uh, That's who I wanted to send. I was like, oh, this is cute just because like something. But I accidentally sent it back to him oh, oh no oh no max, max. uh i was like oh it's so foolish so so foolish <laughs> but, but i just told him <laughs> i just told, told him, him i was like i told him i was like oh i meant to send that to manager ash she, she'd love this and, and he knows that we uh that ash and i like have you know carry on all of our business yeah. together so well and he's then probably we very up. flattered too yeah yeah in a way. <laughs> think so? well if i was d- talking to like brad pitt on facetime and i found out he screen grabbed it and sent it to his wife or something i'd be so honored so max is brad yeah. pitt in this scenario <laughs> yeah i guess i don't know it's not the best analogy <laughs> uh so yeah i i i mentioned erica's uh, dungeon that she's in i mentioned max's nick nurse hat and i kind of left you till the end shane because i feel like this is a this is a big moment we are one day before uh your wonderful wife alex is about to be induced and you're about to be a father for the second time how you feeling like is the countdown on or do you you have nerves oh my wife in fact is at the hospital getting a balloon um not injected but placed up her vagina to induce (laughs) labor it's called a foley balloon 
I think. Yeah, it's a celebration. A baby's coming. Yeah, but yeah. She, she's there, you know, baby Lou's just going crazy right now in her crib and Alex is at the hospital. So it's on. The countdown is And you're happening. podcasting. <laughs> <as> <laughs> <a good laughs> we all have our roles hey, to play. Yeah. <laughs> There's priorities. I was saying to Lauren that was that you were getting you and Alex were getting induced uh, on Sunday. This was a couple days ago, and she said, "Max, do you know what like induce in, like what, what that means?" I was like, "Yeah, you know, they like um, they give the baby some drugs and it pops out. <laughs> that, that's basically <laughs> what, what that, yeah, a little cannabis." Um, and then, I, and then I was like, and she's like, "Uh, kind of, not really." And Lauren has this theory that. I, for things I'm interested in, I know a lot about, but if I'm not interested in the subject, I know zero about it, like <laughs> literally zero. And it's kind of true when it comes to this procedure. Um, but then, then I asked her, I was like, hey, Lauren, is it possible if like Alex has the baby before Sunday, like before she's to be induced? Is that possible? She's like... Max, think about what you just said. <laughs> if the baby is going to come out before, it's not like the baby's like, nope, you can't have to wait till <laughs> Sunday. Wait till the appointment. It's like, it, it's, it's like, it's just like by definition, like having like a premature birth is just when it, it happens, when it happens. Like, just think about that for a second. I was like, oh yeah, I guess if the baby wanted to come early, it was going to come early. They don't, they don't care. Well, so, the, it almost did that. happen early because uh, my wife or Alex, you guys know who she is. Uh, she was at the hospital the other day, like two days ago, and they were willing to do what's called a stretch and sweep because the baby is pretty was pretty much ready to come out two days ago. But Alex is like, my house is a mess. We have no child care. Like we have to clean and get the baby monitors up. And like our house was a disaster. It looked like a hurricane went through it. So we were able to delay uh, Betty's arrival until t- tomorrow. Hopefully, it could be mm. Monday. It could be Tuesday. Uh, sometimes these uh, in- inductions don't go as smoothly as you hope. Hey, actually, Shane, you just pointed mm. out something that I've always meant to ask you about. No, because I always hate. Not hate's too strong of a word, but it always makes me slightly uncomfortable when people describe their partner as specifically guy to girl as my wife. It's like, oh, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, my wife. Is it because of Borat? Borat ruined it for everybody. My wife. No, no, I know. I do think of that sometimes, too. More in, like, the sort of, like, ownership-y part of, like, this belongs to me. I know that's not what you meant. And I'm just using you as an example because you've used it. You've done it before, but lots of people do this. I only do it on a podcast to contextualize who I'm talking about. If someone's just listening for the first time, and I keep mentioning Alex, especially because she Mm. is an ambiguous name that could mean boy or girl. Girl mm. or man or woman? Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's well, how would you say it, Max? Like to not to, to you're, are you talking about specifically the the possessive of my like, or would you rather say like my partner or or like how would you say it? I think partner is even worse. I think I think just name. Um, w- w- I, like you maybe off the top you say, oh my wife, my wife Alex, or, or my my wife Alex, and then you carry on to say just Alex, 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 Alex. Moving yeah. forward in the conversation. Uh, partner is fine with me uh, too. Partner is confusing because uh, sometimes I'll be talking to someone and they'll be like, "Oh, oh my partner. Like a business partner." <laughs> yeah, and it's their business partner, and I'm like, <laughs> "Not that it matters, but I'm I'm confused on who they're actually talking." That about. actually happened to me where I thought I was in a conversation uh, with 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 a man who was talking about his his partner, like his life partner, and uh, talking about this sort of this this situation. And I found out only after when I was on Facebook that he was talking about his business partner and that he had a wife. And so this whole time I thought I was in this conversation with this guy who was gay. And I was like, oh, cool. Like you're just casually having this chat. But the whole time he was actually talking about this falling out that he had with a business partner. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway. Uh, th- th- yeah. I'd be, I'd be curious to know what the most sort of like progressive idea of of how you refer to your 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 significant other is in the moment right now because i think i was uh, gonna say my chick yeah but i'm like no i'm on the pod and how significant are they as the other you know these are all quantifying words what's her name that could be funny (laughs) what's her name's getting induced tomorrow and uh we're hoping for the best um yeah a lot lots has been going on anything else going on with it with you guys What's going on? This is pretty much taking center stage for me, but you guys go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was in Toronto, actually, uh, two nights ago because my brother 
is leaving or he's left. He is now there. He has gone into the Orlando bubble with the uh, the Toronto FC, the, the football club. Uh, so I went and saw. How, how scared was he before leaving? Not at all. Not at one bit. It, it, the thing he was most concerned about was the food because I guess someone had posted on sideline sources like a bunch of these, uh, the MLS teams are down there right now. And I guess they'd promised a certain standard of food, but I guess a bunch of the players have now been posting like what is a very much like a fire fest level of like <laughs> two, two pieces of Wonder Bread and like a slice of turkey. Salty. Yeah, exactly. So he, most of it was just jokes about uh, what the food was going to be like down there. But yeah, it's, it was just interesting talking about his process and like he'd had his COVID test on Monday, negative, obviously, because he's allowed to go. But then they also were testing his blood for the to see if he's ever had it, like for the antibodies and all that. So he was waiting to see that. And then uh, and then, yeah, he was flying down like private, like charter with the team. Um, and then he's going yeah. just to stay in the bubble. I was like, well, before I got out there to hang out with him, I was like, uh, he, he had to run some errands. I'm like, what, what are you doing? What kind of errands do you run before you go and live in a bubble for like a, a year <laughs> or uh, sorry, a month and a half? Um and he, he basically was going to buy, ironically, bubble wrap so he could wrap his PlayStation because he's decided to bring his PlayStation because he'd be spending so much time in his hotel room that he has something to do. Smart move. Yeah. yeah. But even the first 24 hours, apparently, he can't leave the room. It's like once they get to Orlando, everyone has to isolate for the 24 hours, do another test, and then they can sort of start mm. to proceed. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, just the idea of like operating budgets um, for like big scale operations, whether it's like a corporation or a professional sports league, where it's just like... The NBA clearly has a massive operating budget and they can dip into that. So they're like, you know what we want? We're going to ship all of the hardware courts from each individual city to the bubble so the players can play on the court with their team's logo on it. And I, I, maybe it's like not as expensive as I think it is, but I'm just thinking, like, oh, that's a pretty big undertaking. And I guess it's not that expensive because, you know, we tour and we ship our gear all across the country and the lighting rig. And it's just kind of a, tr- a trucking cost. But it just made me think like, oh, that's, you know, there's a lot of like money being spent into this thing that may or may not get off the ground whereas there's other um you know leagues that don't have quite the same operating budget so they're like okay the nba's budget for meals uh for the next month and a half is going to be six million dollars or whatever the number is and the mlse's budget is going to be seven hundred fifty thousand dollars or whatever it is for for the same period of time and i've just been thinking about how various corporations during covid have just simply had to shut down because they're like, we cannot afford to be in business anymore. See you later. And there's other budget, other like, um, you know, I'll use a record company example, uh, like Warner Music, who I think donated $100 million to Black Lives Matter, just like kind of at the snap of a finger because, you know, the movement was calling for it. And two of their employees uh, like invented Blackout, Blackout Tuesday. And it was just like, it kind of just made me think, like, have you guys had this money just sitting around, like, available this whole time to be doing stuff? Like, to be or, – or, like, you know, a lot, of, a lot of companies graciously, like, haven't fired their work staff because they have, like, a, a pretty big coffer that they, like, are able to, like, lean on. Where other uh, – where anyway, it just makes me think back to previous conversations that would have happened in October where you're like, oh, hey, can we get a little bit more money for this thing? And then they go, oh, no, we have no money. We have no money. You know, like some companies are revealing to have a yeah. lot more money stowed away in COVID than I think we realized. Is my, Wouldn't it is be funny thought. if the shittier NBA teams, like I'm, I'm just going to say the Denver Nuggets, if they use the tarp for the center logo <laughs> instead of like, like, you know, bad businesses, instead of having a real sign, they'll just have like, you know, that fake sign hanging. Or they tape so, it into the floor, just like they Yeah, tape exactly. It. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I uh, thought it was a fun. funny thought. But maybe not. <laughs> no, 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 not all thoughts are funny. Um, yeah, it's like they're actually just using the Lakers floor, but they tape the Nuggets logo over top of the... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got where you're going yeah. with it. Um, well, just we have a lot of businesses on concessions, and the good ones have a real sign that's like engraved in or actually put up with some lighting or some effort and money. And the ones you know aren't going to last just have a tarp. Did you guys with the sign? Did you guys it? see the actual courts set up in the ballroom? There's like a giant ballroom in yeah. Los, or in sorry in uh, Orlando at Disney World, and they've got like the Miami Heat court and the Indiana Pacers court side by side, just in like a giant conference room. And I guess that's what these teams are going to practice on. But it's so interesting to just see these courts set up in this massive like ballroom. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be so Whoa. interesting if they if they get there and actually play games. We've done our fair share of, and I'm sure you've been to these before as well, like uh, private events. Uh, at like the Toronto Convention Center, for instance, like we did one for some charity um, last year. It was like it was 
Toronto. It was like Toronto. It was like a food uh, service uh, charity. Anyway, those rooms are massive. They can kind of do anything in those ballrooms in those convention centers because they have the wheel in like trucks and cars and like anything and everything could fit in it. So I was like, oh, that makes sense that like, you know, Orlando is a place where there's probably a lot of conventions held. Like we've actually played a Tim Hortons corporate event in Orlando, Florida. And it might be like nearby that, you know, that same facility where there's a bunch of uh, basketball courts set up. Yeah. So I I was like, okay, that makes sense. They don't, it doesn't necessarily need to be an athletic center, you know, not, not, or it doesn't need to be a hockey rink that like is regulated with temperature or whatever. It just like get that, make sure the ceilings are high enough and bring in the hardwood floor. And you're, I think you're kind of good to go as long as it's like bright enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. Um, It is interesting though, Shane, back to your question about if Greg was, was nervous or anything. And he, he, isn't i mean he seems to be sort of excited about the challenge and getting back to work well sort of you know we all recognize the danger in going and it, this other thing too is it's like florida's become such a hotbed that it's also sort of like insane and there's a million moral questions and all that but i was interested to know like would you guys be nervous to go or would you even go mm-hmm. i'm kind of like greg in the sense that i get worried about very little things and then really huge things don't stress me out as much right right so i, I wouldn't be that nervous to go just because you know, I'd be more worried about some awkward interactions or the work itself or having such a big project on my plate. Yeah. That would be my focus. Yeah, It's such a unique time in history that I think to be a part of it, yeah, the, I think it's a bit of an honor, to be honest, like because there's a lot of people like that cover the NBA who aren't even allowed to go. So like, you know, our friend Blake Murphy, I'm sure he'd love to be as a basketball junkie, uh, as someone who covers the game as his job. It'd be amazing to just be surrounded in that sort of fraternity uh, or that NBA family for six months and be a part of history because this has never happened before. Uh, and Greg gets to do it yeah, because like there's only, you know, they have to be very selective with who gets to go. And I know Nick Nurse was telling me that with, with the Raptors, not all the staff could go. Um, you know, th- th- I think typically they would roll like 50 deep when they're in the road on the road. But I think only 35 are allowed in the bubble. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's an honor. It, you know, it's like being away for a month and a half, especially after you've been inside for so long. It's cool. Like, fingers crossed it all goes smoothly. And I know Florida is a bit of a gong show right now, but uh, I'd I'd love to go. Erica, would you go down? Would you, if you could, would you go to Florida? Yeah, I think initially I would be very nervous just because of, yeah, everything Max just said, like Florida's kind of fucked right now. But um, the bubbles seem pretty safe, I guess, I think. So I I would be excited to go, I think. Yeah. Greg's going to do a great job, though. He's going to kill it down there. We're proud of you, Greg. (laughs) Speaking about COVID tests, though, I uh, got my COVID result back. And I I probably told you this, uh, but I think on the last pod, it was a bit of a cliffhanger because I was checking my results online. Actually, actually, you would open with that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was actually. Well, good news, guys. It it was a cliffhanger. Aside from uh, Erica's shitty audio, that's the second uh, biggest inquiry we get in listener mail. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I was so I was relieved. Uh, it wasn't showing up on the online portal, so that annoyed me. I was with Mandrash, and she filmed me uh, while I was on speakerphone getting the result, and it came back negative. So it was. I wonder if I would have posted if if it was positive, but I think I might post. Yeah, it if you'd get more views and clicks. It'd be way more interesting if you actually had it. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, but but I'm just relieved. Obviously, no one wants to get sick. I was I was also doing it mainly because I wanted to see my grandmother, and she lives in a retirement home. And you have to prove that you have a negative test in the last like 14 days, just to show that you're kind of like giving a damn. Uh, yeah, also just relieved that I didn't have to, uh, you know, tell Lauren or the rest of anybody else who I've been hanging out with that I'm positive because that that's really the the, the no one problem. wants to like, make I think those phone calls. It's devastating. Oh it, God! It, oh, yeah, just be like yeah. You could have gone viral if she was filming you and they're like, Max, the results are negative. And you're like, oh, man, I knew it. I shouldn't have gone to Jug's pool. Like, and you were, had like a Homer Simpson moment. <laughs> oh, you got it backwards? <laughs> yeah. Why do I always get negative you know news? I was, yeah. 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 I, well, I, I think, okay, tell me if you guys had the same experience growing up in the 90s with baseball steroid results. It confused me to no end that if you were positive – that means you were doing it, and if you're negative, oh, because yeah. you know we, because you know you're following Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire or whatever, and he's like his test came back positive, and you're like, thank God, he's not using steroids. <laughs> he's like, no, no, Max, mm-hmm. he, he was positive. Very he, yeah. he, the, the terminology is very confusing for you. Absolutely. Person. 
What else we got? Yeah, what else is everybody into? <laughs> let's get to topics. All right, let's do some topics. Let's just keep it rolling. Okay, so topic number one, guys, in the news lately, uh, Facebook has sort of, there's been a bombardment of um, advertisers leaving Facebook because of how they feel about the way that uh, Facebook sort of provides a platform for uh, maybe speeches of hate or different things. They don't regulate in a way that people feel like Facebook should regulate. They feel like Facebook should take more responsibility as such a, such a huge platform for the population. Uh, so a bunch of advertisers have pulled their, their money from them. So Facebook is getting hit in a place where all companies don't want to get hit, and that is the pocketbook. Um, also, uh, Nike has taken down all uh, merchandise from the uh, Washington professional football team. I'm not even going to use the name of their team because for years people have been asking to change their goddamn name uh, and and they refuse to. Uh, so Nike has sort of uh, made this choice to not even sell their merchandise on their website, which is a huge uh, deal. So it's pretty interesting that all these companies uh, are sort of like taking this stand at this point during this era of sort of very visible um, social justice. Um, yeah. Uh, do you guys think these statements are sincere? Uh, are you guys cynical about these sort of behaviors? Are these are, are these are these brands that are just kind of like, uh, oh, this is a moment, so we got to sort of do something? Or do you think this is like an authentic uh, uh, choice by these these companies to do the right thing? Okay, I was really interested by this because I um, I think I'm a little more naive than than you guys. Like you guys are much more like critical as thinkers, and you guys see more of the angles. I think I'm a little bit more inclined to give people benefit of the doubt. I think when I, when sometimes when I think about large organizations like a corporation, I think about some of the people that I know personally that work there that are like well-intentioned people. And so when something like this, and this is a pretty dramatic move to, to not, you know, be advertising, say, on Facebook and kind of really truly putting their money where their mouth is because Facebook and Instagram are two of the biggest advertising platforms. I think, oh, this is a very th- this is like the right move this is like a righteous thing and this is like part of the path of progress and you know it took a little while to get there but i'm glad people are continuing to move in the right direction in, in the march of progress um but i but i was but as soon as this came up i just thought immediately i'm like what would what are mike and shane gonna say like what is the the more cynical take when it comes to this sort of posturing but i will say that it's more than just a statement anybody can put out a statement that feels good and that is reflective of the times like we black lives matter like anybody can do that but you know a lot of these businesses have been working for years to build up their following on instagram on facebook it's Mm -hmm. the most cost efficient way to advertise it's way cheaper than a billboard or a yeah but if they get canceled or in trouble because of this Mm -hmm. they're fucked and it's no coincidence that they're doing this now you know people have been talking about this for years but now it's gained enough momentum and steam where they'll actually like mike's saying their pocketbook will be affected by it if they don't like all it takes is one new york times article to ruin them it's like the Bill Cosby thing was going around for years, and then all of a sudden there's all these articles written, and he's he's actually in prison. Hannibal Burris triggers it by talking about it on stage, yeah. and then it's an avalanche. Which, which triggered an article to be written, which triggered everyone to be yeah. uh, reacting to it. And I will say though, I I don't know who was the first um, to come to the uh, to say they're not going to be advertising Facebook. It might have been Coca Cola, but whoever the first one to do it was, oh, I think that actually domino, yeah. the the first domino that actually. Uh, I think is a little bit more of a not courage is the wrong word, but meant more than the the people that followed because Mm -hmm. uh, you know I think a lot about like just the the circles that the the higher ups at all these companies roll in you know and so I was thinking about like you know the head of Nike definitely is a text away from Dan Snyder and off probably sits in the same box as Dan Snyder at Red sorry I'm not gonna say the name the Washington football team's games. And, uh, and for, I, I, I'm just, I kind of like fantasize about the conversation or the text that is sent from head of FedEx to Dan Snyder be like, Hey bro, you know, I love you. I had an awesome time on the yacht last week with you. <laughs> Send my best to Susie. But I just like, we got to do it. You know, like, no, like it's not personal, but like the wind is blowing this direction. And like, you know, I don't even totally agree with it, but, uh, my staff are killing me right now. And, we, yeah. we, we got to make the statement. And I, and I just think with those interactions to be like, oh, I, I would love to be a fly on the wall to see like how those like those ones go. Mm-hmm. I think that you're I think a, a version of that conversation is taking place all over America among some of the most wealthy people and uh, decision makers at companies. My view is it's like 
at this point in time, whether it's a cynical endeavor or not, and there's two types of change. There's sort of like a very visible sort of, I won't even say performative change because ultimately they're making a stand. And that's something that people can see uh, all around the country, right? They can say, okay, this company's making a stand. They're not being ambiguous about where they they, 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 they fall uh, on these issues. Uh, that has value, whether it's cynical or not. And they think that it's going to mm-hmm. lead to, to more money or having the right people buy their products. Either way, I think that's a good thing because then we all sort of move toward uh, a place um, that is a better place uh, and is sort of more tolerant and understanding place. So whatever their motivations are, I think there's value in them doing these things and taking these stands for sure. And then there's sort of like the change that we don't necessarily see, uh, which is like minorities in leadership roles or hiring more people in sort of like uh, in roles that are minorities and all of these sort of things. Those are the stuff that, that isn't as, as seen as much. And then they have to decide, you know, what they're doing as companies to do that because that's not as easily knowable you can't quite just write an article about it unless you do a a big investigation on it but those are sort of the two ways but so to answer your question whether it's cynical or not for them to do it or i think that it's 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 got it has value and it's a good thing yeah it's like uh bell let's talk I, i remember a few years ago i was getting into facebook arguments ironically about whether it was for money or not and ultimately, it doesn't matter whether it's for money or not, because everything a corporation does is for money. But if they're going to do something, it might as well be for charitable or for to push a movement forward in the right direction. Yeah, that conflict has always befuddled me because there is an element of like self-servingness. Mm-hmm. It's just like we want the brand to to look good, and we want to be seen. We want to be well liked. But but like that's why. A lot of people do any kind of active charities because yeah. they they want to feel good about themselves. And, and then and then to Mike's point, it's just like, well, if the ends are good, if we're ultimately like improving society on some level or bring awareness to a cause that's important, mm-hmm. then then that's good. Even even if you're kind of getting the shine from it, but but I understand why it's like why some people also would go. That's like if you're doing it for that reason, it's the wrong reason. The, like the, the real and only reason should be to you know. Uh, to lift up people who are disenfranchised. Do you so, find you ever get hate for that, Mike? Because you're, or sorry, Max, you're kind of a political band. So are people ever like, oh, you're just doing that for the cash, man? Uh, no, no. I think, I think, <laughs> I think, what, I think to, to your question about Max um, and Arkells is I feel like you guys have been a political band since almost day one. Or, or like you've been writing about mm-hmm. things that interest you and you guys are interested in those things. Like how long ago did like something like Whistleblower come out? You know what I mean? And it's like, so yeah. I think if you're something you talk about consistently for the entirety of your career, once something becomes in fashion to sort of push or we're in a moment of social justice, it's not like it's like you can look at the track record. I think there's an authenticity there. So I, I, it'd be weird to me if someone criticized you guys for that. Yeah, I, th- I think you're I, I like to believe you're right, because <laughs> um, it has been a, a big part of our music and our performance and just like the kind of the, the vibe at our shows has always been very much about everybody in the room. And you know, to, to Shane's point, like obviously, like it reflects nicely on us, but it comes from, an, I think, an authentic place. Um, and if, if anything, in the last few months. um, really trying to read the mood of the moment it's like been important for us to not say as much stuff because it's not about like like, um, a band of white guys like you know leading the charge here Uh, it's about uh, other voices so I think that's and I think we we were aware of that because we've been I think dialed into a pretty good degree uh, when it comes to how social movements work and who should be kind of taking center stage at what moment and I think that's because We've always cared about it. But, what if um, a band like Slipknot kind of changed their messaging midstream <laughs> to be really political? Not that I understand any Slipknot lyrics anyway, but if they did that, do you think they'd get a lot of backlash? Or is it just fine? Like, hey, that's who you are now. I know. I, well, I mean, I think uh, showing change and improvement. So he's very good. And I think being enlightened, I think there's a lot of our friends who are like taking up causes now that are really important. And I think I, I, I wouldn't hate on them for that. But it, I think when it's, you know, I, I think I'd encourage that, especially if it was a friend in like a private kind of way. But uh, it does feel sort of disingenuous sometimes when mm-hmm. there are there are public people who've never really sniffed any interest uh, in like in this kind of subject matter and now are all about it. And you're like, okay, like this feels, this feels a little, but it's interesting because those are the people you want to change. But then when it does happen, we kind of criticize them. It's so ironic. Well, yeah, it, it is funny. I, I, there was a tweet that Ash sent me the other day where basically I think it was related to 
just that very idea where basically it's just like we when it comes to I think maybe cancel culture it's like if people have changed since the 15 years ago that they said that thing they shouldn't have said and we're just canceling them now like and this was just someone's personal take and everybody can feel differently about this particular subject obviously that's my preface but like if the point is that we want people to change for the better then canceling somebody for something they said 15 years ago is sort of antithetical to the idea of being able to change. And I think, I thought that was somewhat profound. Where I'm like, yeah, like there is, like if people yeah. ha- have have shown progress in their life, then that that's probably a, a pretty good thing. Did you guys see that uh, Vanilla Ice was going to put on a concert down in Texas, I believe it was? I, th- I thought he was still doing it. No, uh, he had to he had to cancel it because I guess public backlash became too too much. But I did see. So it was like Vanilla Ice cancels concert in Texas, and somebody tweeted, "I guess he stopped, uh, calibrated, and listened." <laughs> oh, I saw a good one that said, uh, "Like, why would he do this? Crowds of ten and under are acceptable." <laughs> That is very, very good. Man. But if even Vanilla Ice can can cancel a concert even though he that he was defiantly throwing in the first place, uh maybe we can we can all change our ways. So but I guess my question though is what do you think will happen with Facebook? Do you think Facebook will, you know, change their ways in uh in a significant way? Are we using Facebook anymore? Like, I logged in the other day. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I know my mom is all over it. She is. Who cares? Facebook's done, Your mom does post a lot. She pops in my feed quite a bit, actually. But the point is, is that the people saying crazy, hateful shit are people like your mom's age who are all over Mm -hmm. Facebook or the people that are sharing misinformation and Facebook is refusing to police it. Mm -hmm. That's that's your mom's demo, our, our parents' demo. And... They also own Instagram, and Instagram, as we know, is like a very effective way for every brand to target you. Because if I think of like, I just bought like a sleep mask; it's a sick sleep mask, and now all <laughs> I get is ads on Instagram. Uh, but um, do you think that Facebook is going to be pressured into like you know being more active when it comes to policing anti-racism and hate well, speech? Well, you're not. We're saying Facebook, but we don't mean Facebook. We're talking about Mark Zuckerberg. Everything flows well, down from him. Like, I know he has a board and sure. I know that there's a lot of, there might be some voices at the table, but ultimately he's the guy that talks to Congress. He's the, he's the guy that has to answer for sort of this platform and misinformation and the wild west that seems to be Facebook. It seems like uh, the buck stops with him. So unless he changes mm-hmm. f- philosophically and his outlook has mostly been to be kind of hands off and like not wanting to um, stifle free speech, you know, there's kind of that, that whole argument. Mm-hmm. Unless he changes and decides to become more of an active person uh i I don't know if facebook changes because i mean maybe the bottom line will ultimately force him to change but i i found myself thinking a lot about who he is as a person and it's so interesting that there's this film from like you know a decade ago or whatever the hell it is now that the fincher film uh, the social network that is basically an examination of his almost sociopathic personality um and now he has become such an important central figure uh sort of in society because of like you said how much facebook influences older uh americans and canadians um it's like so much of like the way things might go are hinged on this kind of like petulant sociopath as depicted in the social network we'll never know if the woody's really like but is it good to see hate speech in a way so we know what's going out there and these people are kind of sh- revealing themselves who who they are there's an argument for and that then they can kind of be canceled yeah this is his argument and it's funny um, I'll read an article about Facebook doing a terrible job policing their audience and the information that gets out there and, and the news source and the algorithms and all that stuff. And I'll be like, oh, this is so bad and they need to do something about this. But then I'll listen to an interview with Mark Zuckerberg and I'll be like, oh, I kind of understand now where he's coming from because it's a little more complicated than that. And people should, to your point, Shane, you know, be able to like see idiots saying idiotic shit or, you know, like see racist for what they are and be exposed for being racist, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So then I'm like, okay, I totally get and then and then I'll see like what Jack over at Twitter's doing and, and they've been more active, I'd say, than Facebook when it comes to policing Donald Trump, for example for example. When he when he when Donald Trump retweets something that is like a deep fake or something like that, yeah. Twitter has begun to say this is not factually correct or something like that. But They'll they're put- very cool with porn being all over there, eh? <laughs> I don't know. What, what have you been- <laughs> So I hear. <laughs> <laughs> 
I read that in an article. And then, by the way, I have no, absolutely zero sympathy for Mark Zuckerberg. That guy's way too rich, and uh, he has the ability to, to do a lot of good if he wants to. But it is, it does make me think sometimes, like, oh, yeah, this is, like, the, just to Shane's question, like, yeah, how do you, what is the best way to do it, to move forward, to, to like, and, and, when, and when it comes to free speech as a subject matter in itself, that is so complicated, and it is a top of mind for anybody who works on a campus, anybody who works for a television station, any, any media outlet, like these are all things. It's like, how do we, you know, make sure that every voice is amplified, but not the bad ones and who's in charge of dictating what the bad one is? I don't know. Oh, oh sorry. I just have to get this. This could be a baby on the way. Ooh, mm, record exciting. this, record this. It's rolling. We're rolling. Here speaker we go. Phone, speaker phone, speaker phone. Hello, Alex, you're on the pod. <laughs> I know the door's locked. Oh, okay. I'll come. <laughs> Not as exciting. <laughs> she sounded so tired. I know. Well, it's gonna be crazy locked. when she, it's gonna be crazy when Shane opens the door and she's holding the baby. <laughs> she's holding a baby. <laughs> um, that's funny. Okay, but okay. My prediction is that Facebook, especially with the election coming up, is going to police matters a lot more seriously and um because they want to keep swimming in that cashola from advertisers that's my prediction mike do you think facebook is going to change the way it polices anti like racism on their uh, platform because they feel the pressure from all the corporations and all the money they stand to lose i i that's a good question because again this kind of gets back to what i was saying about the nature of Mark Zuckerberg and his personality. Uh, will they ultimately say, not only are we losing money and we can get money back by sort of taking a step uh, toward um, taking a more active role in sort of policing misinformation and racism on Facebook, on the platform? Um, or does he dig in and he go, no, I said what I said. You guys know where I stand. I think that we should let racists reveal themselves. I think people should be able to say what they want to say, I guess. Uh, I don't Uh, Do I think that he will change because of the financial pressure of all of these advertisers backing out? Or do I think his personality dictates that he will dig in and double down and and keep the platform the way that obviously he wants it to be? It's his vision. It's his it's his uh, creation. No, I think that I think money money talks. I think that he has a board and I think enough people will say, no, let's uh, let's take a more active role going into the election. And then that way, advertisers will feel comfortable coming back. So. I think that they will they will bend a bit and change uh, their ways, if even only slightly. It's my prediction. Shandy boy, I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to say he's going to tweak it in a little way that's acceptable for him because he's a bit of a controlled guy, and I don't think he'd want to take the L mm. and change his stance. Mm. What do you think, Max? Yeah, I think that the wind is blowing in a direction where, like, the heads of all the the big companies. All the big wigs, the 0.001 percenters, are going. Okay, this is what we got to do. Like uh, pu- public opinion is so fierce right now when it when it comes to these social matters that, like you know, everybody else who is going to get mad at us, like the people who are like, "How dare you?" Yeah, I'm doing it like a, <laughs> a hick kind of accent. Um, you know, how dare you try to police us? Are gonna are gonna have to just get on get on board and and, and get with the times. So I, I think we between now and the election, Facebook is going to have to uh, really make sure that its algorithms are are not you know taking advantage of you know sort of poor people who don't know any better. Hmm. I was thinking about that you know the idea of like Trump keeps using this this, this uh, saying like the silent majority, sort of insinuating that he has a lot a lot more supporters than are even being vocal, and that's why he's going to win the election. But I started thinking about like real numbers that we can see when it comes to movements, and it's like, let's say that Trump loses the election, and then on his way out, if he even decides <laughs> if he agrees to leave, he says something like, "I was robbed. Let's take to the streets because uh, this is like you know uh, an attack on our civil liberties and our uh, constitution, and this is a disgrace." So let's show people. Do you think? Like, and this would be sort of revelatory in the way that, like, we know how many people actually support Trump. It's like, what would that look like compared to, say, the Black Lives Matter uh, marches, the the Women's March, uh, something like even Obama's inauguration? Like, what would that look like? Uh, my guess is it would be, be like scarier. No, it'd be forty five people in each city at the Capitol building with guns. <laughs> it would look. It would be no. It'd be I don't a lot think more it would. Maybe. That. Maybe it, I'm wrong. I really? don't. I really don't. I think that hmm. there are. It would it maybe surprise you because America's so big. So if there's 330 or 40 million people there, let's say you get 15 million people marching on Washington uh, let's say. across the country. 
on Washington. That that feels like a really big number, but sure. it's actually a very fringy mm-hmm. part of the population. It's only like, you know, what is that? Uh, 5% of the population. So so I think there is a probably 5 to 10% of the population that like would do that. I think there's a lot of people who would identify as Republicans who want conservative policies that would be disappointed if Trump lost because they want to be able to like appoint their Supreme Court judges or any of those causes that they care about that Trump would represent. But I think they would also accept losing to a Democrat because they lost to a Democrat in 2008 and 2012 and many times before that too. So I think, I, I think to your point, Mike, it wouldn't be as, Dramatic. I think a lot of people would be like, oh, can this guy get the, just get the hell out of here? He's just being a petulant baby. Because that, that would be a very unprecedented move for any president that lost. But if he was calling for like a revolution uh, like or, or like a revolt, don't you think all the racists would come out of the woodwork and it would be a huge problem? And they would be gun-toting people, like Mike's saying, and a lot more violent than maybe the BLM protests? But my, my guess is I think the numbers would visibly be lower, like his inauguration or really? something. Like I think it would be... But there's so many racists out there and all the racists voted for Trump. Like, not everyone who voted for Trump is a racist, but everyone who's racist voted for Trump, right? Yeah, I just suspect it's like, I don't know, I guess maybe it was like seeing that Oklahoma, uh, that that rally in Tulsa. I was just like, maybe it's Mm. not as like the silent majority he's talking about isn't actually as much there. And then the majority of people that do vote for him are the people that Max is talking about, just Republicans that want, you know, him to implement policy that, you know, they care about. But I don't know if like the fervent fandom that he thinks he is like, I don't I guess what I'm saying is it's like, I don't know how many hardcore like identify as racist, like the people that marched on at Charlottesville. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if it would look Mm -hmm. like it felt like the people that were counter protesting were larger than the actual people that were sort of the vocal sort of like hate mongers. But I could be totally wrong. And to your point, Max, like a small percentage of Americans that go out to like sort of like do this revolution would probably still visibly maybe be larger than I'm thinking it is. No, no, I don't think you're wrong though, Mike. I just think that it's it's just like there it's it would be a very small percentage of the population. America just happens to be a big country, and so it's like the same thing. Like when I was driving by Queens Park three months ago, and the anti-vaxxers yeah. and the the yeah. people protesting, going, you know, this is slavery, like you know, like holding up ridiculous mm-hmm. signs as it relates to quarantine. And it and if you were to like interview a bunch, you'd be like, oh, these these are all people that like are from the greater Toronto area. And wow, there's a there seems to be a few hundred of them. But then when you actually step back and go, okay, if there's 300 people here in an area that comprises of uh, that are like six million people that could have driven to that location and only 300 showed up. There's actually there's always going to be 300 wackos in in a population of, you know, six million. So I. Yeah. My wife did a Instagram <laughs> <It's> a <callback. laughs> did an Instagram did an Instagram post uh, about how everyone should wear a mask if they're in a hospital, and uh, it got 500 comments on it, and 300 of them were hate-filled, gun-toting racists, anti-vaxxers too, and flat earthers. Wow. So, and she got like some, you know, threats, like implications, like my wife's going to get shot if she goes near these people. What? That's yeah, madness. it's pretty insane. Did you take them seriously? Like, were you worried? Were you worried? Actually, worried about that? Or were you like, this is just uh, silly? We were just happy with all the engagement <laughs> that the post was getting. It's like Instagram says that thing. This this post had more engagement than your last three posts. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to promote it? We're like, promote it, promote it. Um, I guess. I guess overall, what I'm trying to say is, it's I'm trying to extrapolate a positive feeling. So, like when I see the women's march, mm. you know, or people marching on Washington for like social change or the the Black Lives Matters marches, or it's like it just is so visually overwhelming in such a good way. I feel like there's more people out there, young people that are like thinking the right way and standing up for the right things. And whenever I see the sort of the opposite of those marches, it always feels like a hundred to 300 people with guns. And it always, it's, I, I'm just like, I like those numbers. It feels like it's going the right direction. But I I agree exactly with what you're saying, but good people tend to not have guns and uh, means of mass destruction. Whereas bad people, if they're, they have one of those AR 47s or whatever those guns are called, they can take out a ton of people. So it just takes a few wackos, as Max would say, to take out a large number. And that's what scares me. It's a good point. It is a good point because yeah, like less people with weapons are more dangerous than a ton of people with no weapons. Mm -hmm. All right, guys, uh, let's move on to our next topic. There was a piece in the New York Times uh, with the headline that was quite attention grabbing. I feel like this was going around a lot of places, mostly amongst uh, the parent set. Uh, 
But the headline is, in the COVID-19 economy, you can have a kid or a job. You can't have both. Um, So this piece was pretty interesting, uh, written by Deb uh, Perlman. Um, You know, from her perspective as like a a working parent um, with her husband or her partner, uh, who was also a working parent who was furloughed. They have children at home. And she basically talks about how as the, you know, things get back to, I guess, whatever the new normal is, kids going back to school in September, it's like maybe they go one out of every three weeks. They're sort of figuring out what that looks like. And so everyone can get back to work. But the thing is, no one's really quite thought about how parents are going to deal with kids at home, say, for, you know, three weeks out of four during a month or whatever, and still do their jobs if both parents are going to work, the implications of that. Um, and and so it was a pretty sprawling article. And I thought that it hit on a lot of very um, um, insightful and true uh, truisms about the times that we're living in. Uh, Max, what specifically stood out to you about this this article? Well, I've always had this theory that the article was talking about, I, but I've been talking about this for years. And so I, don't, I think this even applies to the pre-COVID era too. <laughs> Hot take. Where... Yeah, I'm kind of half joking, but uh, because I've always, you know, felt that like, at least with in my line of work, like in the way I like to be engaged uh, with my job, I was like, oh, man, having a kid would just be like so hard to do to do both of them. And obviously people figure out how to do it. Um, but I, I thought the article was really interesting because obviously hearing from you, Mike, as we've caught up in the last couple of weeks, like what how you and Danica divide your time between the baby is, is something that you like, you just have no time in the day for literally anything because you're either watching uh, the baby or you're have to get back to your job. And I was thinking about Shane and Alex. So you guys, uh, you know, are running this whole other enterprise with this family tree and how exhausting that must be. I was Mm -hmm. out with our friend, Aaron Goldstein, who owns a recording studio in Toronto and his wife uh, Michelle works, and they have to do all that juggling. And I was just like, "Yeah, I just I was more interested to hear you guys speak on it, and and like mm-hmm. what you guys think are practical solutions." I know I've, we've I've heard somebody like toss around the idea of just like doing kind of daycare with like in in pockets of of friend groups, basically, where like one mm-hmm. one day somebody takes the kids, and everybody's kind of like in a pseudo bubble together. But uh, yeah, Shane, let's start with you. Well, for me, I'm so supercharged right now. I probably don't even actually know the stresses and anxieties that I'm hiding away how that's going to manifest itself when it comes to me later. But right now I'm like really thriving with the weird adrenaline rush I'm getting from the fear. I'm really a, a fear driven mm-hmm. person. So the the idea that the economy is going to crash or something just makes me want to work three times harder. And I'm I'm running on fumes a bit, so I don't even feel any pain from this have you ratcheted up your uh your this family tree operation it feels like you've never been busier tenfold yeah just because my commute's gone so now what i used to spend 15 to 20 hours essentially doing nothing catching up on podcasts or or napping i'm just putting that into hardcore like i'm running myself through like a business school i'm learning a ton like how to do invoices send prompt professional emails deal with clients like i've never done that all on my own where i'm the intermediary and the uh person actually doing the work so i'm, I'm learning a lot about that so and are you going to bring that to the mic on much operation too all the skill set this college <laughs> well, well, that you've been it's through it's a lot harder what i like about my wife is, sorry alex <laughs> is that i can control her <laughs> i can't control her no, but I, she she listens to me and she respects me and takes my opinion a lot more than like, you know, we're peers more on mm. creative aspects and things. And you obviously run our Kells and there's a lot that goes into me making business decisions when maybe, you know, a potential client could be trying to do a reach around to get to Maxi Boy through <laughs> Mike on much and st- like it's a lot easier with dealing with. Alex, but I would love to quadruple down on Micah much. There's just a lot more moving parts. But to, to get to the actual thing you're talking about here, I have a, we have, we all have a very handsome and smart friend named Mark Myers. And like 10 years ago, he told me, if you ever want to get something done, give it to somebody with very little time on their hands. Mm. And I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense to me. And he's like, no, he's like, watch, they will create a window of time and they will just get it done in like an hour, whereas somebody else might procrastinate on it for weeks or months. So I've always like taken that. So now I use my daughter's nap time, which if I'm lucky is about three and a half hours. And I get probably a day's worth of work done in three and a half hours, sometimes two days of work done because I'm so 
focused now. Whereas at work, if work is kind of a fun experience, I got Mike there, <laughs> we can kind of chat a little bit, the internet, I, I go for lunch, there's, I'm, I'm going to the gym, where at home I kind of, I'm in my own world, locked away, just getting shit done. And when so my daughter goes to bed at seven, so from seven to midnight, that's another pocket of time where I'm just going crazy. You know, I might lose 10 years off my life though. Who knows how this is gonna come to me later. Shane, so what you're kind of describing in a way is is how I've sort of lived my life uh, as an entrepreneur, as like a business owner, if you want to call that when it comes to Arkell stuff and other, uh, and I really enjoy it. And I've always said, you know, sometimes we'll like go around the Champagne Boys group and go like, who do you think the hardest worker is like in our friend group? And sometimes people even say me. And I always think that's kind of ridiculous because I don't feel like I'm working that hard. But then I guess the way, the way people view me is like, I'm always kind of on, I'm doing stuff. And it's and in a large part, it's because it's like self-serving. It's like something that has to do with like my own shit. And it's like promoting our band's art and our work and our music and whatever. And so it sounds like you're getting a real taste of that right now. And, well, it's and you're enjoying fun, it, right? Like this is, yeah, it's, it's very stressful work, but it's that fun type of stress where you just pace around the house and you're kind of excited. It's much And you're thinking, than, it's creative, right? It's very creative. Yeah. Like you're thinking like, well, what's the best way to email this person or to get in touch with this person? Or what's a fun angle on this next pod that we're going to do? Or how can we decorate the ba- the background of the shot or whatever mm-hmm. it is? It's it feels all like very... a video game or something or a puzzle. And once you figure it out and you actually get that big win or that big guest or that big download number you were searching for, it just, it feels great. When obviously there's the flip side, when you don't, you get a little low for a bit, but I do enjoy the challenges that this very strange time has presented. The, the other thing that is also satisfying um, is that the results, um, th- because there's no bureaucracy, the, the results mm-hmm. can happen quickly. So it's like, in order for you to, in, in a work situation, get sign-off approval on some yeah. project that you might be interested in, it would be like, okay, does Randall approve? Okay, Randall has to get a budget from Dave. Okay, are we da-da-da-da? But now it's like you can think of a way to get a guest on this family tree or whatever and then reach out in 20 minutes and then you might have an answer by the end of the day. And you're like, this is sick. It's all happening right now. So that, that, that's one of the, the, the reasons I've always talked about like why – I feel really, really lucky in the job is that like I can that those um, the feedback is so immediate and you can kind of get those jolts of energy, which is and my business partner is right beside me. Like I sleep beside my business partner. So it's not like the discussion just ends after we have a 10 minute talk about it or a 10 minute meeting. I can keep it going and hear her side potentially all day and night and even into the next day. And we can really figure out what the best plan is. So there's definitely an advantage to uh, having sex with your partner, your business partner, <laughs> just to do another callback. Uh, Mike, what, what's your experience been uh, when it comes to to working working people like you and Danica? Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a lot more difficult, I think, in the sense that uh, like for us uh, compared to sort of life before, which is an obvious statement. But I think, you know, when I listen to you guys talk about an endeavor like this family tree, which is to Shane say it's very personal and it's exciting and it's fun. You can see results and it is entrepreneurial. Same with you, Max. The stuff that we're working on, like so Danica and her job she has such an immense like workload and a whole team that she's responsible for that it truly is an eight hour day uh, that needs to be, and it's usually more like dur- during normal times, like she wasn't just doing eight, she'd do eight and then come home and do work. Now it's like, because you know, she, we have to split the days up and then we just work in the evening for me. Like I've got, we've got this huge project, which is good that work is coming back uh, to our job, but I'm like, I'm basically producing um, and directing three like mini docs on three different artists for this project that we're working on that is going to have to get turned around in a certain crazy amount of time. So for me, I like when I'm projecting out on having to deliver that over the next like two weeks, which is an insane turnaround for work like that. I get very stressed out because I'm like in a normal day, like I would go into work, I would sort of like start to produce, I would write the questions, I would get everything prepared. Then I would get all of the footage and I would start cutting it together and I would have all this time during the day to sort of mold and shape what I need to do. Now I know I'm working with like, it's like, okay, on Monday, maybe I have, I can go from nine to 11 and then it's like, I have to feed the baby and then I get nap time. But then the afternoon, I I can't work on it at all anymore until the baby goes to sleep at seven or seven 30. So then it's like, you get nervous about deadlines. 
deadlines. So you're living in this constant soup of like, am I going to hit those targets and do this and do that and all of these things. And you can't work on your own timeline because there are hard deadlines to meet, which is the nature of that work is just going to be very different. And so Danica's feeling that immensely. I feel that immensely. So yeah, I mean, we've actually looked into bringing a, um, some childcare in. Uh, we're going to start interviewing people mm-hmm. that can enter our bubble and be like, basically look after Win for like four hours a day, three days a week sort of deal. Uh, just because mm. the workload's just, it's become too immense. Um, and again, I think this is also the difference between like working for somebody and working for yourself. You know, what you guys are describing, uh, you know, you are making your own timelines and all of those things. It's like, whereas... There's other people that aren't just us. And I know obviously with both your businesses, there's there's partners and people that rely on you guys hitting certain targets and then certain dates. But yeah, so I just, I what I feel like um, to an extreme degree, which I didn't feel before, is this constant like pressure. Like, you know, uh, we mm-hmm. used to have these valves, whether it's like meeting up for drinks on a Wednesday night to watch a random Bucks game or going to a Raptors game or whatever it is. Those valves don't really exist anymore because even if we are getting together in a backyard to have some drinks... In the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, God, I, st- I know I have a mountain of work next week and it's like or the baby this, and the baby that. So I, I, I really empathize with that article and sort of the idea of how you move forward in a new future. It's like, does one of the parents sort of quit and just become full time childcare? And then it's like th- one of the points that she made in the, in the piece in The New York Times is all it's going to do is for like working professionals that have kids where a parent has to drop out maybe until this crisis is over uh, they can't it's so hard to jump back into a profession that it's gonna it's gonna widen the gap between the wealthy and uh, the people that don't have because you know the, the way you can jump into a different sort of like I guess um, socioeconomic uh, bracket is by like two parents working and sort of providing and, and getting more money and now again this is not to say that money's the end all be all but this is why people sort of want to get to a certain place because there's a lot of wealthy people right now that aren't as at pinched at all over this crisis. They can still afford childcare or they can afford not to work for the next year or two or whatever it is. There's a lot of people in the middle uh, that are don't have that option. And if they have to make the tough choice where one of the parents has to quit their job, they're just going to sort of fall further behind. And that's going to happen on a, a larger scale, which is one of the things I thought that she said in the piece that was really uh, insightful or thoughtful or interesting. Well, yeah, especially if you're like a janitor or something and there's no child care available and you have to go out of the house, like all the stuff we're talking to is we're privileged enough to be able to work. From Absolutely. Home. Like the people who can't are really fucked. Absolutely. Yeah. I think about even like some of the essential services workers like that are, you know, working in hospitals. It's like the nurses, for instance. And like if you have a kid at home, <laughs> like how does that work? You, you think the government should be. Uh, shipping in more to take care of the families of the essential service people, and I don't know how that's really been addressed yet. Have you Have you guys heard of anybody who's like uh, thought of like a creative way to deal with childcare uh, in a sort of like coalition style manner? I know everyone's very um, is being very careful when it comes to like who they interact with, but like, are there any good ideas that you've heard about that wouldn't that not including like grandparents taking care of the kid that's like, Oh, this actually worked pretty good because we shoveled the kids off to the neighbor who also is the same age or something, or I don't know if we're there well, yet. The, but. the point of her article was basically, it's like, that's not a sustainable plan for so many people. It can't mm. just be like, Oh, like, cause there are people that have neighbors help out or they, they're lucky enough to have grandparents in their lives that can help out. That's not sustainable for so many people who are to Shane's point, you know, you have to physically go somewhere and do your job. So it's like, what is the alternative? And there really isn't a great solution right now. So we're all just kind of like focused on the immediate, like, okay, how do I get through Monday? How do I get through Tuesday? And then like, you would hope that maybe the government or, you know, some oversight could come up with like a long-term plan if this is going to be long-term and it looks like it is going to be more long-term um, than not. So I, I don't know. It's a great question. We always can say, well, it's easy to identify the problem. What's the solution? I don't know. Have you heard anything, Shane, as far as like a way out of this for parents that want to, you know, both keep working and, and look after their kids? No, just because I'm so looking at my own self to keep myself afloat yeah. that and I realize I'm the exception rather than the rule here and how I'm flourishing or thriving under this. I know most people aren't that I don't have any solutions just because. I do, like you said, I'm lucky enough to have the the grandparents in the bubble. So I have this built-in childcare. So for me to be like, oh, just use your grandparents or something. It's just my, my solutions are all bullshit because I haven't had to actually face hard problems during this. Yeah. And, and also, like, I also acknowledge, Shane, you brought up a great point. Like, Dan and I are both able to work from home in these sort of, like, these jobs that are not nearly mm-hmm. as taxing physically or have to be in person or, you know what I mean? Like, 
you know, it, it, it should go without saying, but I do want to say like, so grateful to that we're able to sort of still be in this moment and we still have our jobs and it, it's, it's a problem that, you know, juggling the baby, but I think right now it's a very good problem mm-hmm. to have because the alternative is obviously yeah. not, not nearly as good. So all, all you have to do is just go, I'm going to get through Tuesday, you know, and then, and if yeah. guys are going to get together for a nice socially distanced backyard beer, it's like, I'm going to do that too. And maybe that's where I can find a pocket to mm-hmm. unwind uh, this week. My best advice would just be to, while you are working, like, let's say you typically work an eight hour workday, but under these conditions, maybe you can only get two good hours when your child's napping, put your phone away and try to turn that two hours into four to five hours of productivity. That's a great, that's a great point. Great point. And nighttime working. I mean, that's kind of, that's become the norm. You just kind of got to wait for the baby. And again, this is just assuming we're, we're speaking only to people who are working from home, which we're not big time. All right, the last one. So uh, recently, uh, and sadly, uh, comedy legend Carl Reiner passed away. Um, he was in his 90s. Is it sad when a person's that old? I'm always wondering. It's, it, like when a person's 100 years old, are we like, ah, oh, that's so sad? <laughs> it's a fair question. I think it is still sad because you mourn the fact that I'm sure they, or maybe not, wanted to continue on. Uh, and also the legacy they leave behind. But I don't think it's a tragedy. It's probably still sad. It's not a tragedy. Maybe it's the difference or whatever. Okay. I don't know. These are just words, distinctions. But either way, he sadly passed away. He's, he, you know, he directed the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin. He was, uh, he's part of the comedy routine in The 2,000-Year-Old Man with Mel Brooks. He, he's, he's sort of somebody that comedians and people of the comedy world, he's old showbiz. He worked on like the Sid Caesar show. His son is Rob Reiner, who went on to direct a ton of famous movies like This is Spinal Tap, uh, Stand By Me. Um, so he's kind of got this rich legacy that, that people just, just misery misery exactly as a ron reiner um anyway he passed away and because he passed away there was this article in the guardian from like february right before the pandemic all about his relationship and friendship with mel brooks so mel brooks is obviously another massive 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 comedy legend uh these two guys are in their 90s they met as like staff writers on the sid caesar show as comedy writers and basically since then have been best friends been 70 year friendship um and both their wives have passed away over the years. And so they have this tradition where they just get together every night. They eat dinner at Carl Reiner's place. They watch Jeopardy. They talk about all the sort of problems of the world. And and this, this article is so beautiful, the way it sort of like unfolds their friendship. And also, I found it very sad because I read it after Carl uh, Reiner had passed away. So it's like even in the article, they address what it would be like if one of them went. And they talk about the sadness in, in Mel Brooks' eyes as he thinks about the, the sort of the possibility of losing his best friend. Um, and anyway, it just it, it made me, and I put it in our Champagne Boys group because it brought up, a, it made me think a lot about sort of like the nature of our friendship and how much we value being around each other. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, and just sort of like, it made me sad because I'm like, when these guys, as they get older, as they lose their partners, you know, their wives, um, and then they, all they have is each other, what happens is they sort of get down to the last man standing. You know, I thought a lot about Mel Brooks and like losing the guy that he hangs out with every night. But yeah, so I just thought it was really beautiful. I think everyone should read that Guardian article uh, if you want a sort of a nice, sweet, sweet read, a little bittersweet read uh, that also sort of revisits Carl Reiner's career. But um, so yeah, what did you guys think of sort of the, the Carl Reiner-Mel uh, Brooks relationship? Yeah, I think uh, it, it touches on a theme that we've we've talked about, I think, in our friend group, uh, but this idea of kind of like getting older together and, you know, what an important like slice of the pie friends is. And I'm, ta- I'm paraphrasing something you said to me the other day, Mike, uh, but how like your life, um, you know, if you look at it like a pie, it's it's like your relationship with Danica and Wynn is, is a significant part, but, but also the Raptors is a big part and your friends are a big part. And, and, and what so occupies lately, a bigger space here? What's the percentage points? Yeah, I think it's pie? even. He, he said it's exactly 33 for Raptors, 33 for Danica and Wynn together, and then 33 for uh, his friends. Uh, that's what he said, and I'll carry on. So, um, and, and just thinking about um, just like us, like hanging out and, and continuing to do sort of like boyish things as we get older Mm -hmm. and that's why i love the article so much it's just them sort of talking about the news of the day and eating food and like watching tv and consuming media and i was like oh that's sort of what this podcast is to a degree or like when we go to a bar and we think about like you know what we're gonna what we're gonna eat 
you know, it's like even them saying it's like their love of free food. And like <laughs> when you're in entertainment, it's like you can go to parties with like free food. Or if you're on set somewhere, what's for catering? And when we did the TV show together, like a big topic of the conversation was like, okay, what are we having for lunch? Right? <laughs> like that's like a big thing. So, but what, one of the parts of the article that I like the most is that they could remember the first time that they ever met each other. And it was on set of like a television show that they're both working on and they kind of hit it off immediately. And it made me think about my friends uh, and trying to think about early memories of meeting someone who became a very good friend. And I don't really have any clear memories of most of my friends and the first time I saw them or interacted with them. But I do happen to have a photograph of the night Dan Hamilton and I met. And Dan is definitely best friend material. Uh, It always feels like kind of um, childish to say like, this so-and-so is my best friend and he's my second best friend. But Dan Dan is uh, certainly up there and uh, he's been such a good friend to me uh, since, it would have been 2009, so for over 10 years. And we have a photo from the first night that we met. And I, and I do remember kind of hitting it off with him and, and, and feeling connected to him. So I guess my question to you is, do you have any like distinct memories of the first time that you, that, that you hung out with someone who ended up becoming a very dear fr- friend to you in a way that Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks can remember their first interaction? Yeah, I never thought I'd be friends with with Mike at all, like let alone like close friends. But uh, I met him at what, Time Out Bar and Grill, right? Yeah. Oh, I remember that distinctly. That's a that's a good one. Yeah. So Mike was kind of at the bar, and I was like, you know, I always held Mike on a pedestal because he was like Greg's cooler older brother who had one kind of gotten into the VJ search, which which I thought was an impossible thing to do. So I saw him. I'm like, oh my god, there's there's Mike Veerman. So I I, I went up, and I wasn't really going to talk to him, but he talked to me and kind of said that he had Greg had his brother Greg had shown him a documentary I made and Mike was saying how much he liked it and then uh, we were just kind of chatting and I was like oh okay yeah I guess I'm never going to talk to Mike again but I thought that was a really cool moment and then we ended up working together and becoming obviously amazingly close friends so yeah, it's pretty weird how things work Yeah, out. that's actually a good one. I was like, it's funny because when you said that, Max, I was like, oh, geez, I'm like, is there any distinct meeting? And then I'm, I'm so glad you said that, Shane, because I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. the one. I totally remember that where my brother had brought that doc home and I thought it was so, uh, I just, because you made it in high school and I was just like, I thought it took so many chances and was so like revealing and vulnerable. I was still 22 though, Mike, <laughs> so let's not give me too much credit. <laughs> um, and, and, and yeah, and I just remember like, being like, wow, I never would have put all of that stuff in a doc about myself just because it was so personal. And so I, I remember I respected the hell out of the fact that you did that. And I just remember saying that I was like, I needed, I wanted to say that to that guy if I see that guy. And then I mm-hmm. saw you, and that was like the first time we we like met. And uh, and that was right before like the Spectator just did a big article on. Yeah, you. yeah, it was in the paper. And uh, th- so you hadn't even gone to the VJ search. So this was before you even worked at much. Yeah. So I thought you were the coolest guy just working as a waiter at Swiss Chalet. <laughs> and then you, then you went on to be in the show and like almost like win the VJ search. And I was like, I'm never talking to that guy again. 